Welcome to episode one of See, Hear, Speak podcast. In this episode, I speak with accomplished scholars Anne Castles and Kate Nation about their recent paper on the Reading Wars. Though Anne is in Australia and Kate is in England, I had the great fortune of catching them together in Australia. During our conversation, they define the Reading Wars and share some insider information about how the paper was published and its impact so far. They discuss connections between comprehension and word reading, and we consider differences in reading instruction and policy in the U.S., Australia, and England. At the end of our discussion, Kate and Anne share their most exciting current projects and some fun childhood memories around their favorite books. Don't forget to check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com for the transcript of this podcast, links to open access articles that we discussed, and more information about Anne and Kate. Thank you for listening. First, I want to thank you for being on the inaugural podcast, See, Hear, Speak. And I thought it'd be best if you introduced yourselves and tell me a little bit about your, uh, you know, what you're interested in, your title, place of employment. Uh, so I'll, I'll go first. I'm Anne Castles and I'm a professor of cognitive science here at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia. I have been doing research in reading and and reading difficulties for well longer than I like to admit actually because <laughs> it shows my age and I'm not willing to share that uh, <laughs> with the podcast um, but for, for at least 20 years um, I've been trying to I guess untangle how it is that children learn to read and what it is that gets in their way why children struggle and the very different ways that children can struggle. And I'm Kate Nation. I'm from the UK, even though I'm sitting here at the moment at Macquarie <laughs> University in Australia. Um, my um, main home most of the time is at the University of Oxford in England, United Kingdom. And like Anne, I've been working in uh, reading research for some years now. Uh, I think it, Anne, it might be a little bit more than 20 years. But, um, <laughs> Um, and I'm particularly interested in how children learn to read words, how they become expert at reading words, why some children struggle to become expert. And I've also got an interest in reading comprehension as well and how children and all of us um, uh, construct meaning from the text that we read. Mm -hmm. Well, so we do have three speakers, but I think it will be fairly obvious who's speaking based on our accents, since I have the <laughs> strong Midwest US accent and Australian and Kate British. So hopefully uh, you'll, the listeners will be able to tell who we are when we speak. So I've asked <laughs> you to talk today because you wrote this mammoth, amazing paper over 50 pages. I don't want to discourage anyone from reading it, but it is long and every word is amazing. And it goes from, as you said in the title, reading acquisition, novice to expert, ending the reading wars. And I do want to note that there is a third author, Kathleen Rastel. When I originally asked the first author, Anne, to speak, I was very happy and lucky that Kate was going to be in Australia with her so I could get both of you together. It was real luck there. Um, so I, I want to start out by just having you explain, you know, this term reading wars, it's so dramatic, and of course the main premise of writing the article. So what are the reading wars and really is the war still raging on? <laughs> um, well, I, I'll start with that. I, I guess really broadly speaking, the reading wars is a debate about how children should be taught to read. And at its most general level, it's a debate about whether um, that instruction should be very 
explicit and targeted on um, showing children, sort of teaching children the alphabetic nature of our writing system versus allowing them to essentially figure those out those things out for themselves. So the phonics side of the debate argue that um, the English writing system is a code, it's a code for sound, and at the very initial stages of reading, the very best thing you can do to get children started in reading is to teach them that code. So teach them the relationships between sounds, so-called phonics. Um, that might also be uh, bigger than individual letters, it could be what we call graphemes, they're sets of letters that make a single sound, such as double O for OO, for example. Teach those to children so that when they see a word, they can sound it out for themselves. And if they have that word in their vocabulary, for example, then um, they can also understand that word. Now, against that is something that rose up very much in the, I guess, the 70s and 80s, which was a reaction to what, what was seen as perhaps being very boring um, skill and drill type teaching um, of phonics and a view more that um, reading is a very natural act, a bit like learning to talk and that you don't need to explicitly teach children these sorts of things. They'll pick it up through their reading. So the focus is much more on exposing children to um, texts, rich, meaningful texts, um, allowing them to learn to read as they essentially as they go along in reading, picking up cues from the context, um, using visual types of cues, and just essentially figuring it out for themselves. So that that's the broad debate. Perhaps Kate would like to give her impressions on whether she thinks they're over. <laughs> um, it's interesting to think how best to answer that question. I guess if we look at the scientific literature, the science of reading and the science of reading acquisition research, from a sort of cognitive psychology perspective, the, the, the war seems pretty much over in the sense that there's broad consensus in the scientific literature. And yes, of course, there are outstanding research questions and there's refinements and, and we need to do more work always. There's always more questions to, to be addressed. But broadly, I think um, most reading scientists would accept that uh, children need to acquire phonic knowledge about how the alphabet works and so on and how written language works and that to teach that directly and explicitly is a good thing. That's not to say that that's all there is to reading of course and I think part of the fueling of the reading war has come from the focus on those very early stages of reading without really thinking about everything else that has to go on alongside and certainly afterwards uh, um, to, to bring about successful reading in a more global sense as opposed to just acquiring that phonic knowledge. So yes, I think um, in the in the sci scientific literature, um, the walls are not raging. Out there in classrooms and so on, I mean, I think some of the feedback we've had in response to the article suggests that there are still debates to be had and that there are still different perspectives out there which are impacting on how children are taught or not taught. Mm -hmm. This paper, as I said, is so comprehensive and you talk about the reading wars, but you really couch it again, not only with just phonics, but you go into comprehension and what's required across the span. And I'm wondering just a bit before I even delve into more details about that span, what was really the impetus for you to write this paper? Or how did you come to publish it? Were there any difficulties publishing it? What, what was the impetus? So Kathy, Kate and I, had all been working in aspects of 
reading development, different aspects, but complementary aspects. And I guess when we got talking, we felt as though perhaps one of the impediments to resolving the reading wars, at least um, sort of more in the public domain, was the fact was two things really. The first one was we felt that perhaps a lot of the literature tended to just sort of talk about, yes, here's the evidence that phonics works, things like large meta-analyses, which of course are very important, but that didn't necessarily so much explain the whys. Uh, why does phonics work? And we felt that maybe if we explained that um, very as clearly and accessibly as we could, that that might help to, to um, clarify uh, some of the points of difference. And the second reason was, as, as Kate alluded to, we felt as though perhaps not enough attention had been given to those other aspects of learning to read and teaching reading, which is so important. And so we felt as though if we wrote one article where we essentially tried to give a very accessible review of all of those things, as you say, it was big. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> we regretted. <laughs> um, the decision to embark on that uh, late nights. Um, but we also felt that if, the, if you had all of that evidence in the one place in a public access forum that um, was re readable to professionals and teachers, that that might just help to um, move the debate forward. Yeah, and I guess that was um, the choice of journal that we uh, sent our paper to was, was influenced by that desire to communicate more brilliant and more broadly uh, beyond the scientific literature and the psychological science and public interest by its very title appeal mm -hmm. to us mm -hmm. and they have a, open access to um, uh, supporting um, public engagement with the work through the um, Association for Psychological Science um, website and, and so on and sending the paper off to various you know, um, policy related people. So we felt that that was a good journal to, to target and so it went off there and we had really good advice and support from the editorial team and from the expert readers. Uh, expert readers. Yes, so we got some, some excellent feedback which definitely made the, made the paper better. So it was a very good experience all around. It was definitely hard work but I think also all three of us have, as academics have always very much had a focus on impact and on translation. We we love doing our experiments and sitting poring over our data, but we also quite like to think that we can change aspects of the world for the better. And so this was certainly an an effort on our part to do that. Yes, I, I particularly like the what you call boxes where you give some key information. I feel like the article could be used as a, a syllabus of sorts in a course like reading and writing. I teach reading and writing in the schools and I'm thinking this is material I want to cover and it's such a nice synthesis. I really appreciate that. Um, I wonder Kate, so. Kate has to get the credit for those. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was, thank you. Well, that's, that's good to hear. We were, we were keen on the boxes, mm -hmm. um, but there's a little bit of a funny story there because we made boxes and then uh, sent the paper off. The reviewers were happy with the boxes. In fact, I think we ended up adding an extra box or mm -hmm. two at the suggestion. And then when it got to the copy editing stage, <laughs> the copy editor didn't like the box oh, because no. they didn't 
that the journal hadn't used boxes before <laughs> and this seemed to be something that wasn't a good idea and he wished for them to go in the text themselves as opposed to in boxes and um, this is where Anne gets the credit because she um, uh, 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 well, he seemed to want, to, it was okay if there were boxes as long as they were called tables. Um, and then we had to turn them into a table. But of course, they didn't fit because we've got lots They're of not tables. Yeah, we've got lots of pictures in there, I think. And so finally, at one point, late at night, I sent an email to the copy editor saying, what about if we just essentially take a photograph of them and call them figures? And he went, oh, fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You had to get it into his box of thinking, you know. Yeah. So for a while and then gradually they became boxes again. <laughs> I, they're almost like infographics a bit. You know, that's what I first thought was because they have the graphic components as well as descriptors. And I think they're very, very clear, which is nice. Um, so scientists, I think, I mean, people could argue, right, that scientists are a pretty logical lot. So what do you think is driving this continued debate when there's so much scientific evidence for phonics instruction, and even just beyond phonics instruction, evidence for the way that reading acquisition unfolds over time? Well, I think one of the things, and I've, I've certainly thought about this issue a lot, certainly I don't think it helps when you get pe people on either side of the debate that are too black and white, mm -hmm. uh, because of course that just fuels division. But the other thing um, is that, you know, there's a lot of teachers out there who are extremely experienced and who've been teaching for a long time and who perhaps have been taught using particular methods that aren't necessarily heavily phonics based. There's, of course, a lot of things called balanced literacy or multi-queuing or searchlight type models, which a lot of teachers were taught with. And we do know that there's a significant proportion of children who will kind of learn to read no matter what the method. You know, there's a lot of kids out there who pick up phonics knowledge. They do pick it up essentially implicitly via their own reading experiences, or they don't require extremely explicit instruction. Um, something a little bit less direct can, can work okay for them. So the point is that every teacher has experienced a significant degree of success. They've all seen kids learn to read perfectly well, um, whatever method they've been using. And so it, I can really understand that it must be very hard. If you're a teacher that's been teaching for a long time and seen lots of children go on to become wonderful independent readers when you haven't necessarily taught phonics really explicitly, it can be very hard to accept a message that some scientist is telling you you should be doing it a different way. And so this is all about being aware of the fact that we're talking about, you know, on balance and, and particularly for struggling children, we know that a, a grounding in basic phonics is very important, but that's not to say that, you know, every child would be illiterate. Right. <laughs> that wasn't, I don't know if you want to pick up on that, Kate. Um, yeah, I think I guess just to emphasise the, the point that you made at the start there, Anne, that sometimes people are at the extremes and not helping their own positions even. So, for example, in people who are um, advocates for um, synthetic phonics approaches, um, sometimes you know, will say quite rightly and quite appropriately that phonics instruction is something like you know, necessary but not sufficient. Mm -hmm. But then when this discussion of the things you know the other things that are also necessary but not sufficient that somehow waters down the phonics message um, 
and I can understand where that comes from because there's a desire and a, and a necessity, I guess, to, to point teachers to clarity. Um, but the, the reality is reading is complex. It's yeah. it's a big skill that takes time to develop. That's very poor, as you know, in your own work, Tiffany, it's very um, multi-dimensional, multifaceted and so on. So yes, we all agree phonics might be necessary, not sufficient. But we also have to talk about the other bits mm -hmm. without with the bathwater. It's interesting, isn't it? It's almost it, it's almost like in the attempt to provide clarity of message, mm -hmm. there's some loss of nuance, mm -hmm. and that loss of nuance, of course, offsides mm -hmm. a, a lot of people who know that nuance to be there, who therefore won't accept the more direct message. Mm -hmm. So it's it's an interesting question about communication. I think that makes a lot of sense and the way that you've covered it again broadly from phonics to language I think is important as a speech language pathologist I often encounter you know a speech language pathologist saying well language is so important and like you said Kate that's true and language is important but I always say that language is key but that's not what's going to teach word reading language that's is key, key for comprehension and you have to have those two critical components so it's almost like you said and that nuance is difficult to to get across because you're saying yes language is good language is good language is good just not the way you teach word reading exactly at the start that's mm -hmm. right you know we, we know some you know shared reading experiences are really important and working with children and developing narrative and vocabulary and so on but that in and of itself is not going to allow children to work out how the alphabet works and how written language works. That's not to say it's not important and it shouldn't be going on at the same time in spoken language and in shared language and talking about books and stories and narratives and so on. But with all the you know will in the world, that is not going to teach children to learn to read words if they can't even deal with their letters. You know, it's just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. There's different, different uh, remedies for different aspects of the reading um, uh, in, in the different components of reading and then likewise all the alphabetic skills in the world are not going to help mm. you understand a complex text if you haven't got those spoken language skills to drive your text comprehension. I mean I think that's right and I think it is one of the reasons that the phonics side of things is so important because teaching as you'd well know um, Tiffany at teaching language skills is extremely difficult and it's something that happens over a, over the long term. There's no quick fixes there, you know, it's something that we really need to be working on. But how exactly to do that? I think we have a lot still to learn. The thing about phonics is it's a relatively constrained set of knowledge, knowledge base and you can teach it relatively quickly. You can get children on the path to reading you know, many kids, most kids probably in six months or so. And so it's a really, you know, you get, kind of get great bang for your buck with phonics. <laughs> you know, you can get kids going and that's why it just makes so much sense to teach it in those initial months of reading because you can get children on path. And of course, as we well know, once children are reading for themselves, that's a very, very big uh, input to their language. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And I'm, I think you, I want to circle back to the point you made about how some children learn with whatever method and that, but most children need this explicit instruction, especially those who would be uh, struggle early on. And so it does seem to be also a, a critical point that even though some children benefit from multiple methods, why not choose the method that you know will work for most children, especially those who might struggle to mitigate some of those difficulties later on. 
Yeah, um, I, I agree. I, I think I, I would say, though, that even for children who appear to develop good word reading skills without having explicit phonics instruction, you know, we have to ask questions about have they really got good reading skill, word reading skills that generalise yes. what's their spelling like? Can they read unfamiliar multisyllabic words? So is it the case that their phonic knowledge is really as secure as it would be had they have been taught by explicit yes rich explicit methods so yeah you can get so far on implicit learning and of course implicit learning in some ways is what it's all about because the alphabetic code is very complex very varying and so on but maybe that explicit grounding in in, in the, the core aspects of developing knowledge is, is central for all children yes yeah, and, sort of that point and i should clarify i certainly wasn't meaning to suggest for, from that that there's a better way to teach those other children or that you shouldn't worry about those phonics with those children or that they wouldn't do better again if they had had explicit phonics. I was simply making the point that teachers see children who are who are reading fine um, even when they perhaps haven't engaged in really explicit phonics and so they can have that perception mm -hmm. but you know we certainly know all children need to grasp the alphabetic principle to be good readers and there's work interesting work with precocious readers very young children who do appear to pick up a lot of reading skill independently you know before they start school but if you test those children they're all good decoders they can all read non-words so they have picked up the alphabetic principle they've just been able to do so with with less explicit instruction than others but their their phonic knowledge is there and we know that's needed I think that's a really critical point that you're making because if you use an approach that's implicit, like let's say the guessing from context, and you have a child who picks up on these patterns and maybe is just uh, more readily and rapidly picks up on them, but may have more shallow understanding. So, and, and also how far can that strategy get you ultimately um, for the depth of reading that's required to comprehend in the later grades. So I think that's a very important point that it's a depth. And Kate touched on the, the connection with spelling is a really important one too because spellings are really i think understudied area but i think it's there's a lot, at least some evidence to suggest it's quite a key pathway to good word reading you know so um teaching children new words via having them spell them yeah. is very effective and to the extent that phonics supports spelling skills i think even well past the initial stages of reading, um, that can be an important avenue to um, assisting reading. I think this is a, you know, I, I admit that this is a bit of a simplification, but to me it seems that reading is more of the receptive portion, so you're taking it in versus, you know, spelling being that expressive portion, you want to have both of those uh, faculties well underway to be a literate person. So it makes a lot of sense, and it's bi-directional, like you said. Yeah. And I think that's yes. critical as well. So that's right. I mean, it can be a bit of a perception that spelling, well, you know, doesn't matter so much. You can just use the spell checker. Yes. Um, but to the extent that it's interacting with your reading ability, it, it does matter. Yes. As a, and it's almost it's it's a task in and of itself to create better word reading. And I think you're right. It's underestimated in that way. How do you think these these debates are different across? our nations. So how's it playing out in Australia and the UK? And I can speak to the US perspective. <laughs> well, I think the UK is, is certainly further yeah. progressed than Australia in terms of 
phonics actually having been sort of incorporated in national policy. Kate could probably say yeah, something well, about that. Well, I should that. say it's England. It's slightly oh, different. Yes, yes. The situation in um, Scotland mm -hmm. is not the same as in England and, and, and in Wales, again, different. But in England, um, systematic phonics instruction, structured phonics instruction has been part of the national curriculum for quite a number of years now. Um, and in addition to it being part of the curriculum and an expectation that all children, when they enter school, which in England, children enter just before their fifth birthday, so four and a half, and they're very young when they start to have formal instruction in reading, which is phonics. Um, so in addition to that being in the national curriculum, it's also um, tested formally at the end of year one, so after the, after the first full year of um, primary education. And there's a national assessment called the um, phonics screening check. And to the extent that schools have to report children's performance on, on, on the phonics screening test, it's become known as a bit of a high stakes mm. test. High stakes for the children, of course, because mm. the children are just doing some reading with their teacher. But because of that reporting and, and so on, it has high stakes. And since the phonics screen's been introduced, that's really emphasised and, and solidified the the statutory element of having phonics instruction from the outset in, in English schools. And if we take the metric, if we look at the number of children who are achieving what's considered to be the pass rate, uh, an acceptable level of performance of their age on the phonics screen, that's gone up with each cohort going through over the last five years or so. So children are getting better at doing whatever it is they have to do to achieve well on the phonics test and I guess the inference from that is teachers are getting better at teaching what the national curriculum is, is asking them to. That's great. It, it, works, it works I guess in, in England because um, there's a lot of people in England but it's a small country and we, we, we don't maybe this is what's different to some extent with the US and Australia where it's more of a federal system and that's that's right so that is one of the complexities in australia as you say tiffany there also there's differences in children start school about a year later in australia than they do in england not sure exactly how that relates to the us you can probably fill us in on that um and certainly um there have been various national inquiries within australia coming to the same conclusions as the national reading panel and the rose report mm -hmm. proposing um systematic phonics should be taught it is embedded in the curriculum but there until um, recently there has been no push for something like a phonics screen that's just come up in the last year or so to be um, more of a, a push so I think um, it's a bit of a joke in Australia that we tend to adopt whatever England does about five years later so <laughs> we're, headed, we're headed that way but I think we will be a very good thing especially seeing um, the kind of effect that it has had, yes, on, on probably downstream effect on on the quality of reading instruction. I think the main thing in Australia is uh, education is is, is state based. Um, uh, it's run at at a state level, and there's just an enormous amount of variability um, across states and across individual schools within. States. And so some are doing outstanding, excellent phonics instruction, and some are hardly doing anything at all. So we haven't got that sort of um, a more, uh, you know, national um, sort of mandate or management of that. I would say What's that's very. 
very similar in the U.S., uh, quite similar. So it's a federal system, but states make the decisions, and it's based on political party who's leading those and making those decisions, and those wins can change quite dramatically, um, you know, every four years or so. So it's been hard, I think, to pin down a systematic curriculum. And I don't know how this it plays out. In the, I'm particularly interested in the UK. I think here we have different, quite a bit of differences in teacher training. So if you teachers come from, you know, a, a background where they're taught uh, very explicit phonics and they have that scientific basis, then you see that translate to the classroom. And if you see that they don't come from that basis, which is more often than not, um, you know, they just, you just don't see that in the classroom. So it's still it's still a, a very strong foothold here. We also have a strong foothold. Uh, reading recovery has a strong foothold here. And um, as you know, that's using more of the whole language approach. And so I think that, uh, you know, to the extent that reading recovery has been a, a mainstay for many schools, we don't see that explicit phonics approach taken in those districts. Um, and I think that we- That's been true in Australia as well. Reading recovery um, has been very, uh, strong here. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think, too, I, I, what I see is that test scores, even though they're not where they should be, there's often a, a sense of, well, these children, you know, we need to focus on poverty, for instance, or we need to focus on uh, childhood trauma, or we need to focus on multilingualism. And those are the targets as opposed to saying, what if we had systematic explicit phonics? what would that do for decoding that would then, you know, maybe truly even the playing field as it's thought. So I think sometimes we focus on the wrong aspects, although it's good to focus on, you know, uh, making sure that children have food and that we're focusing on poverty, we're focusing on trauma and social emotional support. I think that the idea that it has to be at the exclusion of, and it can't, of, of systematic phonics, like one or the other, that's what's difficult for me to understand. Yeah. yeah. And you're seeing that there too a bit. Um <laughs> well, <laughs> possibly not twice as much. I think another issue is that it, it at least in Australia sort of echoing that idea, I mean the curriculum itself is very crowded in primary schools. Yes. Um they do all sorts of um, you know, nothing wrong with any of the things that they do it's just that um, there's only so much time um, and I think it can be extremely hard uh, for teachers to try and fit <laughs> into their day all the various things that they have to check off in order to um, you know meet the requirements of the current curriculum and that's certainly something that's been a bit of a subject of discussion in Australia as to whether the curriculum should perhaps be uh, streamlined a little bit more to focus on those that what we see is the, the, the really core basic literacy and numeracy skills that children need. Yeah, and I think in the UK, in, in, in England as well, there's, there's a similar discussion point that the alongside the phonics curriculum, there's a lot of other stuff that's in um, and things keep changing. You know, we have a lot of testing, there's a lot of um, national tests for children in, even in the primary school years and it's, it's almost as if the Gold Coast posts keep moving and what teachers are required to do keeps yes. changing. And then yes. they really feel that there's some period of, of um, stability here so that teachers aren't constantly having to 
we work things yes. we work things and you know, it would be if you could wave a magic wand and think well can we support teachers at the point of initial teacher training yes so then you know it all feeds in from the bottom up and feeds its way into schools that way yeah and, that's and then free them to teach properly to exactly without masses of top down paperwork and interference yeah. yes yeah that's what i was wondering it seems like idea that what you have implemented now in england is fairly ideal but i'm wondering you know, is that is that actually affecting the college curriculum or not? And what do you think about me thinking it's ideal? <laughs> I think um, uh, practitioners and teachers in, in, in England wouldn't think it was ideal yet. Um, um, in the sense, there's still a lot of variation. You know, there's a lot of different ways you can train to be a teacher in, in England. You can do um, an undergraduate Bachelor of Education degree for four years. You can do your degree in um, some other subject geography and then do a one-year sort of training course to enable you to become a teacher there's now more um sort of in-service training as well where you you, you um, learn to be a teacher in post in a school uh, in with day released college type um, um arrangements and things are different in different places and although broadly there is the curriculum different institutions might emphasize different parts of it and and people tell me i mean this is not a work i'm involved in directly but tell me that the the, the quality of provision varies enormously between different training um providers and that we still hear that in some um training courses the amount of time dedicated to how children learn to read and how one can teach reading is really really limited so I think we're far away from ideal. <laughs> we're still far from ideal in England, perhaps moving in the right direction. Yeah. Have you received, what are you, okay, so you had a section in the paper that was about misperceptions about phonics, and mm -hmm. one of them related to language. So what do you say to teachers who say, you know, phonics is stripping children of rich language experiences, it's so uh, void, of what a child needs to learn at those ages what what do you say to that because i think that's a core argument yeah well i i i think it's wrong you know <laughs> that argument in the sense that what what risks children of rich language experiences is not being able to read and um you know how <laughs> I, exactly. I i can't really understand that argument <laughs> It just seems to be upside down. It's a Humpty Dumpty type of mm -hmm. argument. I agree. And of course, at the outset, if a child is, you know, five years of age and only just beginning to learn about letters and to start to make, you know, links and mappings between graphemes and phonemes and so on, anything they read themselves in a sort of independent way will, of course, have to be limited because they they only know a little bit, you know. But that. You know that's the starting point it's not the end point and but with that starting point we can know with time and with practice they can develop the skills that they can read anything you know um the rich exposure to literature and to the wonders of language and creativity and firing of the imagination and so on of course is absolutely vital there's, there's no disagreement there either but that's not the way you teach initial reading. That's the way that you experience language through being read to, through talking about books, talking about ideas in books and so on. 
And then when the children's reading skills themselves are at a level that they can cope with those sorts of more challenging texts, of course they have to be provided with challenging texts and challenged on those texts, you know, in a more active way with yes. um, discussion with the teacher and with, with, with other peers and with other adults and so on about, you know, not just reading the book, but talking about the book and the ideas. And this. But that doesn't work if you can't read the words in the first place. And so I really struggle to yeah. understand why that argument continues to have with currency. Um, Rebecca Truman, in her commentary on our paper, touches on this as well. I think it's a really important point that perhaps a misunderstanding from the sort of, broadly speaking, whole language side is, is very much this entrenched idea that reading, shared reading, reading to children, reading with children, helps them learn to read. Um, now, reading to children and reading with children is absolutely wonderful and, you know, all, we all want to do that with children as early as possible, as soon as they can understand language. But there are numerous studies to show that although it's very important for things like vocabulary development, um, broader language development, it doesn't teach children to read. When, when, you, when parents sit and read with children, children don't look at the words. Um, they look at their parent or they look at the pictures. And so we know that those activities are wonderful from the language side of things, but not from the learning to read side of things, which the is learning to read words, the learning things. to read words side of things. Yes. That's all, um, those skills that we need children to have. So this is why you can't set those things up against each other. You have to have the teaching of reading. And then separately from that, you have to have these, these wonderful reading experiences. And then as Kate says, once children are able to read independently, then they come together. I think that another point that I hear, I think that's great and makes a lot of sense. Another point I hear is that people will say, phonics is so boring. The children seem so bored and they're just becoming robots. And I think to myself, have you been in a classroom looking at explicit phonics lately? It's actually quite active and engaging and children are enjoying this. They're cracking the code. It's a mystery and they're learning about it. So I think that sometimes teachers are basing it on the weakest uh, level of phonics or something, you know, the weakest approach they've seen or what they think they envision it could be. And I wish that we'd have a better sense of, um, you know, from that view, well, this, it's not like that in classrooms. It, it really is not. It's not stripping them of their soul. They're, you know, they're, they're not just, oh, just becoming, you know, just robots. robots. No. It's, it's, it doesn't happen that way. It's actually quite the opposite. You're absolutely right. It, and, and of course, the other thing is too, there's nothing that kids love more than succeeding in something. You know? <laughs> Most kids I know, you can never let them lose a game, you know. Yes. <laughs> and so when kids are, you know, the look on their faces, so many parents say this to me, you know, after their children have perhaps had some intervention, you know, the look on their child's face when they successfully read a, a little book for themselves, you know, it's it, it's absolutely priceless and they, they love it, you know, and as you say, so many of the activities are loads of fun mm -hmm. as well. And they're learning something that they can apply immediately. That, that's really rewarding for children. I agree. I think that makes a lot of sense. Well, as we start to think about wrapping up, I'm wondering, you mentioned about the fallout, not fallout, the that you think the, the, the reading wars are raging on because of some of the feedback you've received on the paper. So what has been some of that feedback and how are you feeling about that feedback? How has it shaped your continued thinking about the reading wars? 
I mean, I guess maybe the phonics debate that you were involved in, Anne, was a sort of sense of... That was my next question, actually. Philosophical divide, really, mm -hmm. I guess, between um, a phonics first type yes. approach and, and something that's more whole language-like, yeah. Yes, I mean, in general, I think we've been very happy with the feedback from the point of view that um, most people seem to feel that it did find some balance and, and you know kind of tried and successfully represented um, you know the various perspectives on the, on the way you look at this um, there were sort of people who were perhaps more on the extreme side at both ends who were unhappy with things that we'd said and in a way we saw that as kind of a good thing yeah, exactly <laughs> you know, it, it sort of suggests that we 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 found something that was that was sort of an accurate or not accurate but a a reasonable um co not compromise but a, re a reasonable reflection um of of what we see as being the reality of the evidence um yes and i, I suppose the difficult thing is or, or perhaps slightly the mistake from our point of view is I suspect that writing a paper called Ending the Reading Wars <laughs> may not necessarily, it may just spark them right back up again. <laughs> the phonics debate that I participated in, that many people watched, um, I mean, you could just see from that debate just how, how divided uh, the views are, particularly represented by those coming more from a uh, a reading science, psychological science side versus the education science side, which is just a very different perspective and a complete philosophical difference in how you approach the whole idea of learning to read. And it's when you see that divide that you realise just how much work there is still to be done. I thought that I was very dis I was disheartened by the debate a bit. Um, so I, I thought that I wasn't. I was surprised that it was so wide of a gap. I think, you know, we become insular into the people that we speak with and we we see the progress that we want to see. So I was a little surprised. So I did was going to ask you what you thought the best outcome for your paper would be, but I thought, well, the title kind of says it all. <laughs> what you expect. Yeah, I, I mean, I think what we would really ideally hoped for was to get to a point where educators, practitioners and researchers could have, by all means, debate and discussion, but productive, fruitful debate and discussion that was around the evidence, um, which is not to say, of course, there can be wonderful input that you can get from teachers on their experiences, which then cycle back to the kinds of research that that reading scientists might do but we would love to see it become a point where this is not seen as being something where you have to choose a side <laughs> right. but instead um, something and i think what we'd also love to see is more talk between uh, academics and practitioners because we're very aware of the limits of what we know sort of in terms of um practice in the classroom it's obviously extremely important and we want to we we want that feedback and that information but because of the way this debate often plays out 
the kinds of conversations we need to have aren't having aren't being had so we would love for that to happen Kate. yeah i mean i agree i think um i certainly feel very grateful for some of the links with teachers and education professionals that i have where they challenge thinking and and say okay it's fine you saying that on the basis of you know a little laboratory experiment how about in the context of my classroom mm -hmm. with children wider different levels of language you have different levels of parental support and you know, might be learning English in the context of different first language in the home, all these sorts of complexities, you know, and we, you know, we have to listen to that and appreciate that and that closer engagement drives knowledge forward and, and would lead to much better impact of our research. So I think we've all in our work, I'm sure you have Tiffany as well, and I know Anna as and I certainly have with, with my colleagues back home, it can work and everybody can benefit from that closer engagement that is robust, respectful, evidence-informed and keeping the question in mind, all, all the, the, uh, the goal in mind, which is to help kids out. So I think it, it can happen and I guess what would be lovely to see is that happening at scale. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it scales up so that all practitioners, all region scientists can appreciate and benefit from this sort of virtuous circle between practice research theory practice and so on mm -hmm. i think you're right it's it's we're up against human nature but the more open we are to understand different perspectives and the more shared purpose we have then we will get to the goal which is to yeah. have yeah. all children read learn to read in the best way possible we've talked about links between um sort of researchers or scientists and, and practitioners but also you know, we've talked about teachers, we haven't yet really talked about speech pathologists mm -hmm. and the yeah. amazing skills and knowledge that mm -hmm. a speech therapist, speech pathologist has and how we can think about bringing those into the mm -hmm. teaching of reading um, practice more centrally. You know, I'm not saying that speech therapists should be doing that teaching, but the knowledge that you have and that you, your, your students have is so relevant for what someone who's going to be teaching reading Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you for saying that. I think it's also very important, but I do see that same kind of resistance and, and feeling, yeah. but it's not really resistance. I think it's just confidence and training because the speech pathologists I encounter will often say, I feel really good about what I can contribute to comprehension processes. But when it comes mm -hmm. to word reading, there's a bit more insecurity. Um, I'm actually working on a special issue of language speech hearing services in school that's coming out next month that's for speech pathologists focused on dyslexia in particular, but also just thinking about word reading. And so I think that um, my message is to think about, yes, comprehension processes are something that we maybe feel more comfortable with, but we should try to be more comfortable with our role in word reading as well, because we have so much to offer in terms of phonetics, phonology, uh, semantic processes, everything. Something to offer you know, for all children, not just the children who are struggling. Yes, yes. absolutely. For all children, mm -hmm. it's the same language for all children, mm -hmm. and it's the same knowledge base of how language works mm -hmm. and how written language works that's relevant to teaching all children, not just those with a, a label or a yes. special educational need. And yeah. I'm really pushing for the training programs because I think it starts there. So in speech pathology, you know, it's only been a couple decades in our field that we've even had this clear roles and responsibilities in literacy. And so programs have since tried to offer courses and offer that material, but it's only to the extent that they can offer that material confidently themselves that then new speech pathologists can say, oh yeah, I, I get my role in this area. So I, I think that's important too. Um, 
for how we work together. Absolutely. Yes. Well, this is yeah. a great conversation. I have two questions that I always want to ask at the end of uh, my podcast. And that is, first, what are you each working on that you're most excited about right now? I know you've been really talking a lot about this particular article, but you have such diverse research interests just across the board. What are you most excited about right now? Who wants first? to go first? <laughs> <laughs> it's always fun to talk about. Yes. Um, well, let's just say, I'm. I'm I'm doing lots of things. Probably the thing that I'm finding really exciting at the moment is actually some work we're doing really looking at um, children's sort of dynamic processing as they see new words for the first time. So we're taking advantage. I'm a bit of a technology Luddite. I don't necessarily um, embrace this sort of thing, but we're taking advantage of um, new mobile facilities that allow you to monitor children's eye movements as they're as they're reading, which means that you can really get um, sort of a, a literally a, a window into what's happening, you know, in the child's mind at, at the moment that, that that reading unfolds. And so we're doing some experimental work there where we often teach, we manipulate things like we teach children the, the oral form of words or its meaning. And then we present these new words in written form for the very first time and we just look at what happens. How long do they look at the words as a function of the things they know about it or the things they don't know about it? And I think it's got real potential for um, application as well because we'll be able to get a really much more fine-grained idea about what's the sorts of, how can you set children up so that um, when they do see words in written form, they're, they're best able to make uh, you know, to, to learn those words and link them with what they know about their meaning and their pronunciation or, or start to figure out that information for themselves. So I suppose I should let Kate speak. She, that's, she's, well, that's she's just cool working, man. I think that sounds amazing. <laughs> she can talk about what she... Yeah, well, I'm also um, really excited by that work. For, for some time now, I've been interested in sort of dynamics of comprehension processes as they unfold in real time as children read text and the work taking that approach and applying it to word reading problems is is is, is really exciting and I agree very much. The other the other thing I'm beginning to work on at the moment is um we've got a new project starting in January and we're looking for postdoc research many of your uh, tuning in and interested in a couple of years in the UK, you know what to do. Um, so this is a project where we're really trying to think about um, shared reading a little bit more and think about what is it about written language, about text that's different to spoken language. So we know from you know, decades of research that spoken language sets the scene for children's reading development. Broadly speaking, children who, are, who have good language in the spoken domain go on to read more easily than children who have poorer language, generally speaking. So we know, we know spoken language feeds into written language, but we also know that written language is different to spoken language in important ways. So even books that are written for preschoolers contain vocabulary that's much more complicated and much more varied than the vocabulary that happens in everyday conversations. And we also know that books written for preschoolers tend to use syntax, which is more complicated than the sorts of syntactic structures children hear in their everyday conversations. So what follows from this, that as children are hearing, as children are encountering written text by hearing it, by a shared reading, they're already getting an introduction into the language of the book. 
and that's what's really critical for driving reading comprehension processes. You know, spoken language gets it going, but if reading comprehension relied just on spoken language experience, it would be very impoverished compared with the sort of syntax, the sort of vocabulary, the sort of content that is in written languages. Good reasons why written language is different to spoken language, which I won't uh, dwell on now. Anyway, so our, our project is trying to really get a handle on what is it about book language that is different to conversational language in the early years. Mm -hmm. Thinking, how can we help children experience book language if they haven't experienced it naturally via having lots of shared reading experiences in the home? And can we do things in that initial period in school to um, promote book language in a way that's sort of optimal so that the kids who haven't experienced it perhaps because they have English as an additional language or they're growing up in, 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 in disadvantage, can catch up a little bit more than just leaving them to hope for the best. That's very exciting. That sounds awesome. <laughs> that sounds really great too because it's, it also speaks to this idea of how to, to balance. And I like, you said in the paper that balanced literacy has been kind of hijacked for whole language, but I like how you said balanced instruction, I believe you said in the paper. And I think that really speaks to it, Kate, because you're saying you can teach the systematic explicit phonics, but then you're thinking, how do we get this complex language through books? Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and we know that children obviously can't read what they can, you know, they're limited by their word reading early on, but they can listen to complex. They can text. listen and they can talk. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. can talk and listen. So that's really quite fantastic. Well, that's a nice segue to ask you the next question, which is what is your <laughs> favorite children's book? And it's either from your childhood or one published more recently. <laughs> I think Kate should go first because mm -hmm. I know I already know what her answer is here. Yeah, yeah it, it's a little bit embarrassing really, but it's it's what Katie did. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm known by everyone as Kate, but my official name is Katie. And, um, <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah, so I, myself <laughs> I love it. And so, you know, it was, it was clearly a book I was going to uh, read as a child and so on. And um, it has special memories for me as well as it being my name. But um, I remember receiving a, a book token as a present um, one Christmas and going to the shop to choose this book and I decided to buy, um, I already had a What Katie Did but I liked it so much I saw this sort of hardback edition that wasn't leather but sort of looked like pseudo leather with gold lettering on the front <laughs> and I could just get it with my book token and this was like the most exciting thing <laughs> and uh, I still have it. Oh, <laughs> I must you do! I still, oh, that's beautiful. So, I, you know, so many other books I can choose on. Children's books now are utterly amazing. Oh, they, just, they are. Oh. The of getting into Twitter is following some uh, teachers who are really passionate about children's books mm. and picture books for children and the glory of children's books and just seeing them all come up on Twitter. I just want to open a children's bookshop and sit <laughs> in it all day long. <laughs> Absolutely. I completely agree. It's fantastic. <laughs> and well, Kate and I are giving away what nerdy little girls we obviously were, but <laughs> because my favourite of all time was probably Heidi. Mm. Um, and it's funny, I think about it a bit in the context of, you know, the sort of Harry Potter era that we've been in for so long, because I was never at all interested in magic or fantasy or anything like that. I wanted books that were about everyday people 
in everyday situations. I loved stories like Heidi where, you know, the simple pleasures of life in the mountains and fresh air and good cheese and, wow. and then ideally, <laughs> and ideally, of course, what would have to happen by the end is that some child in a wheelchair would stand up and walk thanks to the benefits of the fresh air. And the, <laughs> the miracle. Heidi with miracles <laughs> and Heidi was my favorite but there are several in that genre I mean I love the secret garden as well it was very similar in that sort of way and all of the little house in the prairie books of course were also a big favorite you know <laughs> so there was a definite, definite theme there and, and yeah <laughs> well, we so, that love then <laughs> well I loved Nancy Drew books so oh I love too, I always yeah. laugh and say well it's not surprising I'm a scientist because I love a good mystery you know, yeah. let's get down to it. The clues, I just read them all. The Hardy Boys, all of them. I just loved those books and the mystery behind them. So I think science is a bit of a mystery too. So we can, uh, you know, solve that. On, <laughs> I can tap into my inner Nancy Drew. Yeah. <laughs> Check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, open access articles, and speaker bios. Thank you for listening and good luck to you, making the world a better place by helping one child at a time. <laughs>